Well, this evening we're going to look at the text of Zephaniah. <clears throat> you may be saying, finally. <clears throat> we want to begin with this question of the macro structure. And when we use that term, <clears throat> macro structure, what are we referring to? What's macro mean here? Large. Large, yes. So the large structure of what, do you think? The whole book, the entire book. So we want to begin by asking whether there is a macro structure to the whole book. And particularly when we ask that question, uh, how do we answer it? Where do we look to see if there's a macro structure to a book of the Bible, particularly a small book like this? things we want to look for is possible symmetry or parallelism at the beginning and end, which would suggest a intentional macro structure or large overall framework for the book itself. So let's take a look at the beginning and end, and that means you want to look at the first verse, and then you want to have your finger at the end of the book and flip back to the last verse namely verse 20 of chapter 3, and answer the question, do you detect any macrostructure? Do you detect any symmetry? Looks like a reversal taking place. Ben? Looks like a reversal taking place. In what sense? Well, in I don't want you to go beyond verse 1, okay? Just take a look at chapter 1, verse 1. And then see what you see in chapter 3, verse 20. Mark, did you see something? Well, the first verse says, the Lord of the Lord. The last verse says, the Lord. Very good. <clears throat> That's the symmetry we're looking for. That's the parallelism we're looking for. Okay, verse 1 of chapter 1. <clears throat> the word of the Lord. And verse 20 of chapter 3 says the Lord. Now, that is a symmetry because in the first verse, chapter 1, word is a noun which refers to that which is spoken. And says the Lord in verse 20 of chapter 3 is a verb which indicates what has been spoken. Now, uh, I'm going to... I'll give you, or you have in front of you on your sheet, the Hebrew of these two uh, verses, or actually these two words in these two verses. And I've printed them in Hebrew, and they read Devar Yahweh and Amar Yahweh. Now, uh, for those of you that are learning Hebrew tonight, we'll take the first two words. And you might want to write beside those, chapter 1, verse 1. And we'll begin with the far right of those strange characters. You see what looks like an upside-down hockey stick or an upside-down L. That's actually the letter Dalas in Hebrew, which would be translated like the D, as you can see, in Devar, which I put in parenthesis. The next letter... Uh, 
to the left of that because you read Hebrew from right to left, not left to right as we do in English. So we start with a D, and the next letter is a B. That's the letter base. And the third letter going to the left is a resh, which is the letter R. Now, below the line, you see these little dots and dashes and that type of thing. Hebrew is a consonantal language. So what we have there in those three characters is a DBR. Those are all consonants. But below the line and sometimes above the line, we have the vowels. You see the two little dots below the the, uh, D, and you see the straight line below the B or the base. The little two dots are a a vowel point for E, and the straight line is a vowel point for A. So those are the vowel points which were added by the Masoretes at about 1000 A.D. because they needed to make sure that they preserved the proper pronunciation of the Hebrew text. Now, the second word that is attached to that, you see the little bar between the the, uh, resh, the R, and then the next uh, little jot or yod, which is the letter Y. Uh, That's a sign of a Hebrew construct, which means the word of the. So you you go across that little bar there, and that gives you it's constructed, meaning the Hebrew first word is constructed with the second word. And the second word there is the tetragrammaton. Now, the tetragrammaton, that means four letters. Okay, The tetragrammaton is the name for Yahweh, or in your King James Version, Jehovah and in some other uh, versions as well. Translated in the modern versions, Lord, there's a great deal of dispute still about how the vowels are to be assigned to this tetragrammaton, this four-letter, this four-consonantal letter word for God. And in fact, the Jews, out of their superstition, will not pronounce it. So instead of reading Devar Yahweh, a Jew would read Devar Adonai. And Adonai is another word for Lord. It's a synonym, but they will not pronounce a tetragrammaton. I have a Hebrew uh, rabbi uh, reading the Hebrew Bible on the Internet, and I have it bookmarked on my my computer uh, because I want to hear how the Hebrew sounds. I want to hear a proper Hebrew pronunciation of the biblical text. This guy's quite amazing. He's dead now, but he was a Jewish rabbi in Jerusalem years ago. <clears throat> but anyway, they recorded him reading uh, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. And um, it, it's very interesting to hear it. Well, uh, <clears throat> when he starts reading Zephaniah, <clears throat> he does not say, Devar Yahweh. He said, Devar Adonai, because <laughs> uh, he won't pronounce that uh, tetragrammaton. All right, so um, those two words mean word of the Lord. The var means word, the noun, and uh, the tetragrammaton, Yahweh, or Lord. All right, now, in chapter 3, verse 20, we have Yahweh again as the second word in the two-word clause, but the first word is the verb amar. And you'll notice that as I read them, you're going to hear something. So Zephaniah begins the first two words of the book, Devar Yahweh, the last two words of the book, Amar Yahweh. 
Devar Yahweh, Amar Yahweh. What did you hear? Hebrew. You heard Hebrew. What else did you hear? It rhymes, or it sounded the same, didn't it? Okay, and what did you hear that sounded the same? Not just the Yahweh that was exactly duplicate. You heard the A-R, yes, the Dabar and the Amar. So we have, what do we call that when you have a sound that's duplicated? It's called assonance, correct. It's assonance, a similarity of sound. Okay, so the A-R sound in the beginning and ending of this book is another indication that we've got a intentional symmetry, an intentional parallelism. Well, why do we have it? Well, let's fill in the blanks. The first phrase of our Yahweh is the opening of the book. The last phrase, Amar Yahweh, is the what of the book? The closing of the book. Okay, opening and closing. Symmetry at the opening and closing. Okay, the Devar Yahweh is the inception of the book. Amar Yahweh is the conclusion of the book. Once again, symmetry. Okay, the Devar Yahweh is the aperture of the book. The Amar Yahweh is the aperture, opening, like the aperture of a camera. Closing. Closing or closure. Okay, aperture, closure. Now, obviously, if this is intentional, what Zephaniah has done at the opening or inception or aperture of his work is provide a vector. That is, he's providing an opening direction. And what is he doing? He is prospectively anticipating what he's going to focus on. The word of the Lord, Devar Yahweh. In other words, the first two words of this book are a prolepsis. They are a projection of what this book is going to be about. It is going to be about the word of the Lord. But when he concludes the book, and keep in mind, Amar Yahweh are the last two words of the Hebrew text of this book. When he concludes the book, he doesn't have a prospective vector. He's got a retrospective vector. If Dabar Yahweh is proleptic, then Amar Yahweh is analeptic. He's looking forward to what the word of the Lord in verse 1. He's looking back to the word of the Lord in verse 20 of chapter 3. Prolepsis, analepsis, anticipation, conclusion, aperture, closure, inception, conclusion, opening, closing, etc. This is perfectly organized to do what? To frame the book. The literary paradigm here of the symmetry, the literary style of the, uh, 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 of the form is that he has bracketed his work, his whole prophecy, with the word of the Lord forward-looking 
And thus says the Lord, backward looking. I begin with the word of the Lord. I conclude with the word of the Lord. And the frame or the bracket is therefore framing or bracketing the macro structure of the book, which is about the word of the Lord. Now, in addition to calling this a framing device or a bracketing device, namely the way he sets up the opening and closing of the book, we could call this an envelope device. He folds in the word of God. He folds in the word of God between the macro brackets, the macro framing devices. Or another way of expressing the literary paradigm here. He provides us with an inclusio. The word of God begins and what God has said ends and included between the beginning and ending is God's declaration forthwith or embodied. Now, one more minor point here, although it is quite interesting. The Hebrew word amar, which you see there on the second line, the Hebrew verb amar is usually followed by what is spoken. Now, the common recognition you would have of this is the phrase, thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, I brought my people out of Egypt. You see, thus says the Lord, and then what God says follows. But that's not what Zephaniah did with it. Zephaniah puts, thus says the Lord, after what God has said. Zephaniah uniquely, although this is not, I can't say this is the only place in the Old Testament where this happens, but Zephaniah uniquely places this statement after God has said everything, which is very unusual, because Amar Yahweh usually precedes the quotation that's coming out of God's mouth. Here, it concludes it, which is to say that the book finishes with God's word as the book begins with God's word. It is a perfect symmetrical beginning and ending of the book. Now, you may regard this as a small matter. If we are correct in observing this, it's not a small matter. He has intentionally written the book this way in order to emphasize the fact that what is between the brackets, what is between the macro frame, what is between the inclusio, what is between the envelope, what is folded into this book is nothing less than the word of God, those things which God has said. Now, that's an obvious conclusion for us in conservative Protestant circles who believe that the Bible is the word of God, including the book of Zephaniah, even though we don't know a whole lot about it. So maybe it's for our sake that Zephaniah wrote it this way, because he's saying to us, now look, you people out there 20 centuries down the road, this is the word of God. Why don't you know very much about the word of God that I've written? So I'll start it, and I'll end it that way. In other words, I'll punctuate it at the beginning and I'll put an exclamation point at the end. This is the word of God. Okay, now pay attention. Or, come on, learn of me. Come into the drama. All right. 
This is a wonderful invitation as well as conclusion to what I think is a remarkable little book, which we will attempt to demonstrate as we go along. But nonetheless, here's the genius you're beginning to see, the genius of this prophet. You're going to see it more and more. This man is a literary master, and he set it out at the beginning to draw your attention to what the Word of God is, and here it comes, three chapters worth, and what the Word of God was, and there it was, three chapters worth. Any questions? All right, we're, our little Hebrew lesson is over for the night. Uh, David. This one does. Oh, that one I'm certain. Uh, Jeremiah does in a in a way which is somewhat uniquely different. Uh, Daniel does. Uh, however, we're going to have to demonstrate that. Uh, <clears throat> there aren't many which are as neat as this. However, I say that without having dug into the Hebrew of all of the 12 minor prophets. I'm, I'm making my way. Okay. This is the first excursion. The Lord spares me. Maybe in 20 years we'll be through Zechariah or Malachi. But at any rate, uh, your your question asks of me something I can't answer because I haven't done the work on all of them. But this uh, this one stands out right now. Any other questions? It's it's the it's what David is saying. It's the kind of thing you see that I want to find, or I'm going to look for. That's that's the kind of thing I'm going to look for. I have to find it in the Hebrew text. That's the reason I put the Hebrew here for you. I don't want to find it in an English translation. English translation is not a primary document. I have to find it in the original. Okay. Now that brings us to the content of the superscription. The first verse of Zephaniah is called the superscription. And, Dick, if you're ready, would you please read the first verse for us in English? The word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, son of Cushai, son of Jedaliah, Jedaliah, Amariah, son of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, I'm sorry, Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. Thank you very much. Now, you've heard it in English. You're looking at it in English. I'm going to read it to you in Hebrew. Now, I want to read it to you twice, and I want you to listen. Just listen to the Hebrew. Just listen to what I'm reading. This is the text of the superscription. Devar Yahweh, Asher Hayah, El Zephaniah, Ben Kushi, Ben Gedaliah, Ben Amariah, Ben Ezekiah, Bemei, Yes, yes, I'm sorry. Yoshiahu, Ben Amon, Melech, Yehuda. 
All right, listen again. Devar Yahweh, Asher Haya, El Zephania, Ben Cushi, Ben Gedalia, Ben Amaria, Ben Hitzkaya, Bemei Yoshiahu, Ben Amon, Melech Yehuda. What did you hear? You heard some repetitions using the word Ben, which means son. Okay? What else did you hear? Melech. Okay. That means king. But that wasn't a sound that was repeated. What other sound did you hear repeated? Zephania. Gedalia. Amaria. Hezekiah. Now, Yoshiyahu, even though in your English it looks like Josiah, it's actually in the Hebrew Yoshiyahu. The Yahu is actually a form of the name of God. You heard the I-A-H. You can see it in your English translation. The I-A-H rhymes at the end of those names that are in that verse. And it carries with its own, it carries its own kind of cadence. Now, there's one other sound you heard there, Yehuda, Hayah, very much, very much the same of Zephania, Gedalia, Amaria, Itzkaya. You heard the ah, so you also heard an iah, and you also heard an ah sound. All right. Now, once again, these sounds are an indication of assonance. We have a verse which has one quarter of the words in the verse assonantially rhyming or assonantially sounding the same. This is an intentional device. That is, it's laid down for the sake of the cadence, for the sake of the sound, for the repetition of the sound, So we have an ascendantial pattern four times with the I-A-H and two times with the A-H sound, which is about 25% of this verse, 25% of the Hebrew words in this verse. We also heard the the Ben word, Ben or Ven word, depending upon whether we have a Dagesh in the the base or not. That gives us an alliterative pattern that is five times we have the word ben, meaning son of. But we also have a, a B sound, a base in the word bime, in the days of. In the days of Josiah, bime. So we have six B sounds at the beginning of words. <clears throat> Therefore, in this superscription, in this first verse, we have instances of alliteration, the same initial sound, particularly the B sound, and we have uh, assonantial harmonies or assonantial repetitions, the I-A-H and the A-H sound. All right, now, what about the I-A-H at the end of Zephaniah, the I-A-H at the end of Hezekiah? What does this ending suggest? It's called a theophoric, a theophoric. 
Now, I think you can guess what theo means there. What do you think theo means there, Bob? God. means God. Okay, so what's a theophoric? It's a name that contains the form of God's name. Okay? So, a theophoric is a God form in a personal name. Zephaniah. Okay? Zephon attached to God. Gedaliah. Gedal attached to God. Amariah, you've already seen Amar. You've seen Amar up on the, the second line of Hebrew on the top of your outline. Amariah, the word attached to God, okay? And Hezekiah, Hezek, Hezek, attached to God. Now, Josiah would seem to be the same in your English translation, but remember, in the Hebrew, Josiah is Yoshiyahu. Yahu is the name of God. Yoshiyahu. So Josiah actually should be better uh, written uh, J O S H I Y U. Yoshiyahu. But it's not, so <laughs> we'll, work, we'll work on the, the English translation that you have. All right, so we have these theophorics, at least five of them. In this verse, which means that nearly one, 20% of the words in this verse have a theophoric in the personal name. This is a very high percentage of theophoric terms. But this verse also has some no theophoric names. What are the no theophorics? What are the names that are not theophoric? Marge? Cushi is one? Ammon. Yes, Ammon or Ammon. Now, who is Ammon? He is the father of Josiah. He is a he is a king of Judah. Judah, who is his father? Manasseh is Ammon's father. All right, on the second page of your outline, we want to deal with the question of Manasseh in the Assyrian annals. In the archaeological texts which have been excavated from the Assyrian monuments, buried deep underground, excavated mostly in the 19th century, some of them in the British Museum, some of them in the Berlin Museum, translated into English in a very famous volume called Ancient Near Eastern Text, abbreviated A-N-E-T, standard set of translations of ancient Egyptian text, ancient Assyrian text, ancient Babylonian text, ancient Persian text, etc. It's a magnificent volume that contains these wonderful English translations of these Assyrian and other archaeological records. All right. So, the question is Ammon and Manasseh. And we begin with Esarhaddon.
Who is Esarhaddon? Tell me what you know about Esarhaddon. He is a king of Assyria, correct. Now, let's see what Esarhaddon says. He was king of Assyria from 681 to 669 B.C. Let's see what Esarhaddon says in one of the uh, records of his reign. I caught up the kings of the country of Hatti. Do any of you remember where Hatti was? Or what the Assyrians meant by that name Hattiland? We went over that in our series on Jeremiah. I know you have instant recall, like I do. Past 69 and a half. Hattiland is Syria-Palestine. Okay, you'll notice that he describes it. The country of Hatti and on the other side of the river, meaning west and south of the Euphrates. And he names some of the kings of that region. Balu, king of Tyre. Manasseh, king of... There's the name Manasseh in the Assyrian record. Manasseh in the days of the Assyrian king Esarhaddon. 22 kings of Hatti. The seashore and the islands, of course, he's talking about Hatti land as the Levant. That is the region of the Mediterranean coast on the east side, the Levant, the Levantine plains. All these I sent out and made them transport under difficult, under terrible difficulties to Nineveh, the town of my rulership, building materials for my palace. Nineveh, what, what is Nineveh with respect to Esarhaddon and Assyria? What's the role of Nineveh in ancient Assyrian history? It's the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Okay? All right, so what's Esarhaddon doing? He's gathering up all kinds of cedar and wealth and goodies and loot and so on, and he's having these kings transport it to Nineveh under his supervision to build him a palace. And one of those who is paying tribute, one of those who's involved in, in ascending Money, wealth, and material to Nineveh is Manasseh, listed on the inscription. All right, now next, Assurbanipal II. Who's Assurbanipal II? Another king of Assyria. What's his relationship to Esarhaddon? He is his son, which he will tell you in this inscription. All right, now this is a description of Ashurbanipal's invasion of Egypt in 667. Remember that in 671, Esarhaddon had invaded Egypt. He'd established an Assyrian presence, but he couldn't hold on to it because the Egyptians rebelled. Two years later, in 669, Esarhaddon heard about that rebellion and he began to march to Egypt for the second time. But on the way, he died at Haran. So here is Ashurbanipal picking up where his father left off. I marched against Egypt and, and Ethiopia, Tirhaka, king of Egypt, and Nubia, whom Esarhaddon, my own father, had defeated. So he's referring to Tirhaka, king of Nubia and Egypt. Where is Nubia? Is, is it a synonym of Ethiopia? 
You were going to say, Jay. It's south of Egypt. What's the next country south of Egypt? Not really. Okay? Though they, 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 they called it Cush. Okay? And the Bible calls it Cush. But what is the next country south of Ethiopia, uh, south of Egypt? It is the Sudan, correct. Nubia and Kush are the Sudan, not Ethiopia as we know it, because Ethiopia is on is near the Horn of Africa, in eastern Africa, and the Sudan is actually above it. All right, so Tirhaka is this Nubian king who has usurped authority in Egypt, and Ashurbanipal comes to uh, fight him uh, his, after his father had defeated him. And during my march... Ashurbanipal says, 22 kings. And in the list of the 22 kings, he, he names Manasseh, king of Judah. 22 kings from the seashore, the islands and the mainland. That's Hatti land again. Servants who belong to me, I want to come back to that, brought heavy gifts to me and kissed my feet. I made these kings accompany my army over the land as well as over the sea route with their armed forces and their ships. So Manasseh is once again drawn into the Assyrian world by providing material and support to Ashurbanipal when he marches against Egypt in 667, two years after his father died on the same, on the same route, trying to put down a rebellion in Egypt. Now, that phrase that I skipped over, but I want to come back to that, that phrase, servants who belong to me, servants who belong to me, Manasseh belongs to him. How so? He is conquered? Maybe, maybe not. He has to pay tribute? What do you call that kind of an arrangement? It is true. He is a vassal. V-A-S-S-A-L. He is a vassal. And that makes Ashurbanipal what? If Manasseh is the vassal, Ashurbanipal is the suzerain. Okay, so we have these suzerainty relationships, suzerain-vassal relation. Here you see it. You see this right in the Assyrian language here. Okay. All right. Now, in 667, Ashurbanipal names Manasseh as one who gave him aid and comfort on his way to invading. Egypt, his defeat of Tirhaka, whom he drives up the Nile back towards Nubia because Tirhaka was a black African. He had come into the Delta region to usurp authority. Eventually, the Nubians would establish a black African dynasty in Egypt, but not yet. Assyria is still strong enough to keep them at bay. Finally, Ashurbanipal's second campaign. He actually calls it in my second campaign. Now, this is the year 663. It's an extremely famous year in Old Testament history, as well as Assyrian history. Notice what Ashurbanipal says. In my second campaign, I marched directly against Egypt and Nubia. I went as far as Thebes. Where is Thebes? No, it is not on the coast of Egypt. It is far, far upriver. It is hundreds of miles up the Nile. It is the capital of Upper Egypt. 
called Luxor today. What was it called in the Bible? You actually have it there in parenthesis. It was called No Ammon. That's the Egyptian name for the city. Thebes is the Greek name for the city. No Ammon is mentioned in the prophet Nahum, chapter 3, verse 8. No meaning city, Ammon meaning uh, God, Ammon, <coughs> often combined with the sun god, Ammon-Ra. Ammon, the chief of the gods, combined with the sun god to become Ammon-Ra, the chief god of Thebes. Pardon? <laughs> no, the, 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 the K.A. Kitchen, who's the, the world's most famous conservative Egyptologist and a conservative Christian as well, K.A. Kitchen believes that the word no means city. So city of Amun, the god Amun. Okay. Ashurbanipal went as far as Thebes. I myself conquered this town completely. From Thebes, I carried away booty, heavy, and beyond counting. He plundered Thebes. Now, Nahum uses that event, which we can date to 663 because of this text that we just read, this Assyrian uh, record. <clears throat> Nahum refers to that event and likens the destruction of Thebes, the destruction of Noammon in 663 by Ashurbanipal II, likens that destruction to what is coming to Nineveh itself in 612 B.C. Because Nahum is prophesying the destruction of Nineveh and the end of the Assyrian Empire. So that this event of 663... Play, uh, forms the background to Nahum's statement in chapter 3, 8, that as you did to Thebes, or no Ammon, so it will be done to you, Nineveh. You will be destroyed as you destroyed. It's one of those kind of linchpin dates in the Old Testament based upon the Assyrian uh, record and its correlation with the biblical prophecy. All right. Ammon ruled Jerusalem from the time his father, from the time, his, from the time he died, he, his, his rule of Jerusalem ended when he died, obviously, and when his son succeeded him. So when did his son Josiah begin to reign? 640. How long did Ammon reign? Two years, so he began his reign, 642. All right, now, when was he born? When was Ammon born? Let's turn to 2 Kings 21, 19. The Second Chronicles 33, 21 passage is a duplicate, but let's take the Second Kings text. 2 Kings 21, 19. And when somebody has it, please read it out. That's fine. He was 22 years old when he became king. So he's 22 years years old in what year? 642. So when was he born? 
664, plus or minus. All right, now we always leave a little plus and minus when these, with these dates, <clears throat> uh, you know, within six months or so. 664. What's going on around 664? Ashurbanipal II is about to defeat the Egyptians at No Ammon. Ammon, Ammon. Fourteen years ago, in the journal Biblia, a fellow named Dominic Rudman wrote an article in which he suggested that Ammon, the king of Jerusalem, received his name from the victory of Ashurbanipal over No Ammon. This is an interesting suggestion about the non-theophoric origin of Ammon's name, though it would be theophoric if it were the Egyptian Ammon, A-M-U-N. The article is a tantalizing suggestion of coordination between Manasseh and the birth of his son Ammon and Ashurbanipal and the defeat of the Egyptians at No Ammon. That is, Rudman was suggesting that in commemoration or testimony to Manasseh's vassalage to Ashurbanipal, and the fact that he had helped him on the road to No Ammon and that victory, Manasseh named his son Ammon to commemorate that victory in Egypt. Do we have a document that says that? No, we do not. But it is an intriguing article. Fascinates the daylights out of me. I think he might be right. But even if he isn't, brilliant article. All right. The point here is we have this association between Manasseh and Assyria. We have his name in the records of Esarhaddon and his son Ashurbanipal II. And we have this name in Jewish history, King Ammon, for which there is no precedent, for which there is no theophoric, for which there doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason why this guy would be named Ammon, which sounds very much like the name of an Egyptian god. Now, it is true, there are some Hebrew scholars who say that the Hebrew word Ammon, A-M-O-N, is close to a Hebrew root for being trustworthy. Well, Ammon was certainly not trustworthy, so he was misnamed if that's the point. However, in fairness, I must acknowledge that that is a potential Hebrew etymology. Still, I like these historical connections. <laughs> Particularly when they're so brilliantly argued as to observe this coincidence between the record of Ashurbanipal Manasseh helping him on the way down to No Ammon's defeat in 663 and Lo and behold, 664, 663, he's got a son and he's named Ammon. It doesn't sound like a coincidence to me. All right, but I can't prove it and neither can he. It's just one of these little tantalizing suggestions that you get in some of these articles, which is very, very intriguing stuff. Any questions?
Yes, David. It is fairly common. I don't know how many Gedaliahs there are in the Old Testament, but there are at least two. The one you just mentioned, who is named in the book of Jeremiah, and also in uh, Kings, and this Gedaliah. And when we come to uh, discuss the meaning of these theophorics, uh, we'll indicate uh, what the etymology means. But your memory is well served. There was another one. There's at least two of them. Any other question or comment? All right, are you still with me or did I leave you in the dust? You're with me? Get on you. Take a break. All right, if we're ready to resume, <clears throat> we're down to the section that deals with the genealogy, which we have read in the superscription. And what we have here. <clears throat> is a pedigree from Zephaniah back to his father, Cushi, back to his grandfather, Gedaliah, back to his great-grandfather, Amariah, and finally back to his great-great-grandfather, Hezekiah. Now, who is Hezekiah? Who is this Hezekiah here in Zephaniah 1.1? 1, 1? I assume he's the good king. He is the king of Jerusalem and Judah in the days of Sennacherib in the previous century, namely in the 8th century. All right, so the pedigree or the genealogy of the prophet Zephaniah goes back to Hezekiah, king of Judah. <clears throat> this genealogical pedigree is the longest pedigree of any prophet in the Bible. We know more about the ancestral relatives of Zephaniah than any other prophet in the Old Testament. <clears throat> and my opinion is that we know more about him because he is related to King Hezekiah. Now, we want to come back to this point, <clears throat> but we observe it here because the length 
of the patronymic here, that is, the line of his family descent, the length of it is greater than any other family tree for a prophet in the Bible. We have pointed out other places where Zephaniah is unique as a prophet of the 7th century or a prophet of the 8th, 6th, or 7th century. And here is another element of his uniqueness. There is no genealogical family tree as lengthy as his amongst the prophets of God. All right, now, there is another family tree here. Where's the other family tree in this first verse? Josiah, son of Ammon. And who is the father of, who is, yes, who is the father of Ammon? And who is the father of Manasseh? Hezekiah. We're back to Hezekiah again, aren't we? We have actually a double genealogy here, one of the prophet himself, and we have a genealogy which sends us back to the same figure, from Josiah to Ammon to Manasseh to Hezekiah. Now, Manasseh doesn't appear here in this verse, admitted, and that raises the question of why he doesn't appear there. But we want to note that the central pivot of both of these family trees is in the virtual center of this verse. We go from Zephaniah back to Hezekiah, and we go from Josiah back to Hezekiah. Zephaniah is a prophet who is related to Well, who is Josiah related to? Who is Hezekiah related to? Who are all the kings of Judah related to? So if we go back beyond the line here where it ends with Hezekiah, we're going to go all the way back to David. The blood of David runs through the veins of Zephaniah as it runs through the veins of Josiah. And it runs through the veins of Zephaniah by way of Hezekiah, as it runs through the veins of Josiah by way of Hezekiah. Mary? I think that it's the same man because the name would not appear if he weren't. It is the reason for its being recorded here. What Zephaniah is doing, or what God the Holy Spirit in inspiring this passage is doing, is he's telling us something else that is remarkably unique and particular about this prophet. He is a royal blue blood prophet. He is a prophet with royal bloodline. He is a prophet with kingly ancestors. 
Therefore, the name Hezekiah here, which most liberals reject because it's too good. The name Hezekiah here is pregnant. It is as poignant for the origin of Zephaniah's linkage as it is with the ultimate outcome of that linkage. Here is a prophet who bears a kingly name line. A prophet who bears in his office the blood of David. And insofar as that is the case, he is thereby a son of David. Though he is not a royal figure himself. He is a prophetic figure. Two elements then of the background and destiny of the office of prophet for Zephaniah are combined or demonstrated by this genealogical pedigree. It particularly distinguishes him And as we shall see, it it gives him the role of prophetic anticipation, prophetic narrative anticipation, and even more than that, prophetic narrative incarnation. Now, we'll have the opportunity to spell that out, to flesh that out as we go on. You don't have to agree with me. You never have to agree with me. But you must come to grips with the peculiar uniqueness of what is in this superscription. You must account for what is particular about it. Because what is particular has been inspired to particularly describe this man and his genealogy. All right, now, that brings us to the Theophorics and their relationship to the genealogy. And here we have some things which are certain and some things which are problematic. Some things which we can say rather dogmatically and other things which we can only suggest. Let's begin with the things that are absolutely certain. We mentioned that the IAH at the end of these names means God or Lord. So what does the name Zephaniah mean? It means God or the Lord has hidden. And implied there, according to many Hebrew scholars, applied there, God has hidden what? God has hidden a treasure. I intend to show you what a treasure Zephaniah is. The book itself is a marvelous treasure of inspiration. But it is conceivable that that is implied in the name name he bears. Gedaliah, from the Hebrew Gedal, which means to be great, God or the Lord is great. 
Amariah, as we mentioned earlier, you saw the, the verb amar, which means word, or the process of speaking a word, saying. So, Amariah, the Lord, or God, has spoken. Hezekiah, God, or the Lord, is my strength. And finally, Josiah, which actually in the Hebrew is Yoshiahu, God is my support. The theophoric there in the Hebrew is Yahu, that's the name for God, and is the equivalent of the IAH in the other names. Now, these names are the echo of the faithfulness of those who bear them. This is a line of fidelity to the Lord. From Zephaniah's grandfather to his great-grandfather to his great-great-grandfather. Cushi does not figure in the Theophoric. I have no explanation for why he does not. I don't think that indicates anything outside the paradigm necessarily. But one thing is certain. The other names which bear or carry the name of God in their designation are names like Zephaniah, faithful to the Lord. Hezekiah, faithful to the Lord. Josiah, faithful to the Lord. In other words... This is an inscription which is focusing upon the line of fidelity, even though Ammon breaks the mold. We are reminded then that even in those dark days of Manasseh, the ancestors of Zephaniah bore the IAH name, which suggests that they were faithful in a time of darkness, and idolatry. Well, is it possible then to suggest that these four genealogical names behind Zephaniah's patrimony are consistent with the kings that are equal to that era? For instance, Zephaniah in the days of Josiah. Josiah faithful, Zephaniah faithful, Gedaliah in Ammon's days, Gedaliah faithful, Ammon not faithful, Amariah in Manasseh's day, Amariah faithful, Manasseh not faithful, and then Hezekiah, of course, in his own day, faithful in himself. Now, that is a tentative suggestion. It comes from the fact that Josiah is traced back to Ammon and ultimately back to Hezekiah, and Zephaniah is traced back to Hezekiah. Manasseh does not appear in the list, but someone who lived during his reign appears in the, le- in the list. Amariah potentially, or maybe even Gedaliah. That means that even in the time of Manasseh, there were faithful believers in Judah. We know that's true as a generalization, 
God always has his faithful elect in every age, including the age of Manasseh. Is it conceivable then that one of those faithful was Amariah, who took, who had the name, the Lord has spoken because he was a believer in what the Lord had spoken. Again, this is a a tentative suggestion, but we're trying to come to grips with the uniqueness of this superscription and what wealth of detail there may be here beyond the obvious of this list of names genealogically inscribed. All right, now to address that question of why Manasseh is not listed. Well, you say to me, Mr. Dennison, the verse says, in the days of Josiah. He's missing because he didn't live in the days of Manasseh. He lives in the days of Josiah. Duh. True. But Ammon's name is listed here. Is it then possible that Zephaniah lives in the years that overlap the days of Josiah and Ammon? In other words, he goes back to 642 as well as back to 640. Now, out of that consideration comes the following issue. When does Josiah reform the worship of Jerusalem? When is the book of the law discovered and the reform begins? What is that date? 621. All right, so 621 B.C. is the Reformation under Josiah. You know 1517 is the Protestant Reformation under Martin Luther, okay? So the Reformation of Judah under Josiah 621. You ought to know that date as well as you know Martin Luther. All right, so 621. Idolatry begins to be purged out of the land. Book of the Law of Moses is read publicly by Josiah, the king himself. Celebrate Passover. Purging of the idols. Suppression of the prostitution cults, etc. Okay, now, Zephaniah, according to this verse, is active in the days of Josiah. If he's active in the days of Josiah, and in 621, Josiah promotes this reform, is Zephaniah preaching or prophesying the word of God before or after the reform? Is Zephaniah before 621 or after 621? You say, why are you interested in these weird questions, Denison? Well, because the text of these three chapters are going to force the question upon you. You're going to deal with language in which Zephaniah is talking about conditions in Jerusalem, and you're going to have to think now, is this before or after the Reformation? Is this before or after 621? Now, you haven't seen any of that language yet unless you've read through the book. But 
we're going to we're going to encounter that language as we go on. So we, we are going to grapple with this question of is Zephaniah preaching before the Reformation, and therefore does he have a hand in that Reformation? Or is Zephaniah preaching after the Reformation and there's still corruption after the Reformation? You get the point. Okay, so 621 is a watershed date. On which side of the date is Zephaniah? Or is he on both sides of the date? All right, now we go back to when Josiah came to the throne, 640 B.C. Let's suppose that Zephaniah was born in 640 B.C. How old is he when 621 comes around? He's 19 years old when 621 comes around. Is it likely that we've got a 19-year-old prophet? Not likely. Not likely we've got a 19-year-old prophet. Now, it's not impossible. But we don't ordain 18-year-old elders in the Presbyterian Church. Well, they do in the PCUSA because they've got to have representation, you see. Got to have equal representation, teenagers and everybody else. Nonsense. What does Paul say? Not a novice. You put a teenager in the office of ruling elder. What are you doing? Okay. Anyway. Yes, there are young kings, but they are not ruling without advisors. Correct. And they're not ruling without co-regents. Sometimes their daddy is right beside them because they have co-regencies, which Tila pointed out in that mysterious Numbers of Hebrews Kings volume. We have an overlap between Manasseh and Hezekiah of almost 15 years, for instance. Okay. Well, not likely we got a 19-year-old prophet. Not likely that Zephaniah is born in 640. Is he born in 642 or between 642 and 640? Well, that would make him up to 21 years old, right, if he's born in 642, when the Reformation occurred. So we got a 21-year-old prophet. Now, you know, it's possible we've got a prodigy at, at, at age 20. I've, I've known a few 20-year-old prodigies, theologically speaking, in my day. They're rare, and some of them turn out to be real stinkers. But nonetheless, I've known a few 20-year-old bright lights. Okay, not likely he's 21 years old. That pushes us then back into the reign of Manasseh for the birth of Zephaniah. Because one of the things we're going to see when we get into this book is we're going to see the maturity of the Hebrew of this man. Now, you're not going to be able to to understand. I'm going to have to bring that to you. But I've already hinted to you this is a remarkable piece of literature. It's a remarkable piece of Hebrew composition. It is. It is brilliant. That takes a man who's been around the block a lot, around the block of Hebrew scribes and understanding how to compose and write good Hebrew prose or poetic prose because there's poetry in this book. Much of the language of the prophets is poetic. So, he's he's mature. He's a mature fellow. Now, we press back into the reign of Manasseh then for the origin of Zephaniah, which means he's come out of the time in which Jerusalem was extremely corrupt. Does that then mean that he only prophesies into that, uh, that dark arena as it trickles over into the reign of Ammon and Josiah? 
and that he's gone from the scene before the Reformation of 621. Significant question. What does the language of the book suggest? This is an issue which we will struggle with as we work our way through the language of the three chapters. Now, the bottom line is that it won't alter the positive message of the book. But these are the clues that we seek from within the text in order to be more specific about the concrete historical context of the author. Okay, now. Question. Yes. Well, he does say during the reign of Josiah. <laughs> so we know he's not preaching during the reign of the previous king. Uh, yes, possibly, or these are the records of his mature work. Okay? So he could be laboring in the school of the prophets even before this. But this is the record of his mature work. And they are not recorded. He's building on them perhaps here. But we don't have them preserved. All right, now finally, with respect to this genealogy, let's turn to Matthew chapter 1. Verse 10. And when you get it, read it out, please. Matthew 1, 10. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Ammon, and Ammon the father of Josiah. Where have we seen those names before? Or at least... 75% of them. In the first verse of Zephaniah chapter 1. The book of Zephaniah finds a symmetrical parallel with respect to its first verse in the 10th verse of Matthew chapter 1. And what's the purpose of the first chapter of the book of Matthew? Lois? It is the genealogy of our Savior, is it not? Which means that ultimately Zephaniah in being connected to Hezekiah is also connected through the blood of David to the Lord Jesus Christ. Hold on to that because what you are going to find here is that we have a prophet who is himself a very reflection of the Lord Jesus in many ways, and so invites us to his own eschatological prophetic end, even from the beginning of his prophetic ministry. This, once again, is a point to reinforce the notion that Hezekiah in verse 1 is the royal figure, a descendant of David, a son of David, which makes Zephaniah a son of David in a different office, different role, but nonetheless, one who comes out 
of the line of the son of Jesse. Any questions or comments? Now, next week, we may actually revisit this verse. Uh, I'm not sure whether I will have an extra handout for you or not. Uh, There's nothing more to fill in with respect to what you have in front of you tonight, uh, but you may want to bring it back for the the sake of of refreshing yourself. I'm going next week to uh, pick through the book in an attempt to create a biographical sketch of Zephaniah, more than his genealogy, more than the question of when he prophesies in the days of Josiah or whether he has begun before the days of Josiah, Ammon, and Manasseh. I'm going to try to see if there's anything in the book that gives us a character sketch of the prophet himself. In other words, this is detective work which is attempting to create a personality profile of the prophet. Now, an announcement for the future. Next week will be the last week of our semester before our spring break. So the first week in March, we will be on break, and that includes me. I'm going on break first week of March. So I'm going to miss you that first week of March. Now, you're welcome to come here looking for me, but I'm not going to be here. I'm just alerting you that in two weeks from tonight, we will not be meeting. We will then meet the second Thursday in March. So next week, and then a week off, and then we'll be back to the end of the semester, and probably the second week in April, we'll be stopping for the summer because... I have some things in front of me uh, there, and uh, I'm going to be preoccupied with some other things after the first week in April. Yes, yeah, Scott? Um, I know you're probably going to get to this, but just so in case I forget it, but do you think there's any kind of contrast between this son of David, Zachariah, and the greater son of Jesus Christ, and perhaps the king Stay with me. Okay. <laughs> hold that thought. You're on, you're, you're, yes, hold that thought. You're on the right track. Um, we're going to try to flesh that kind of question out. Let's close in prayer. Father, we are amazed at your hand in history, both sacred and profane. We realize, even as we've seen tonight, that you control the nations, Assyria, Egypt, Judah. We realize, O Lord, that you control the kings of those nations, Esarhaddon, Ashurbanipal, Hezekiah, Manasseh, Ammon, Josiah. We realize, O Lord, that you are sovereign Lord. You are suzerain of all eternity, and we are your humble vassals, your servants who fall at your feet, because Jesus Christ has come to incarnate not only your sovereignty, 
but also your humility. We thank you, Lord, for the prophets who anticipated that role and, in fact, bore part of it in themselves. And we pray, O Lord, that as we continue to read through the book of Zephaniah, we may see Jesus looking steadfastly unto him who is the last son of David, a royal king as well as an eschatological prophet. We bless you for our Savior, Jesus Christ, even as we thank you for the words of Zephaniah. In Jesus' name.